Father, we thank You for a time when we can celebrate communion this morning. And in advance of that, being able to look in Your Word, we ask that You would be our teacher. That You would instruct us through the work of Your Holy Spirit. Father, I ask that You'd focus our thoughts right now. Thank You for the worship that we just experienced, being able to turn our voices towards You. I ask that You help us now to really focus our thoughts and our mind so that we will hear from You specifically. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you uh, have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Ephesians. Um, Paul, we have been seeing, he's been admonishing believers in their walk, how they walk before him, how we walk before Christ. And in this setting, we've got um, this, this city of Ephesus, which is really, really pagan, much more so than any place that we have in the United States today. And, and Paul is encouraging them to recognize that even in the midst of that really vile environment, you can walk in victory in Christ. So that much more so for us here in the United States today, this really speaks to us. So a couple weeks ago, we saw in verse 15 of Ephesians 5, Paul said, wake up. Notice what God's doing for you around you. Wake up to this reality, the salvation that you have. And then last week, we talked about to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what that looks like in order to walk in the power of the Spirit, to understand that God has not only brought us salvation and He's brought us an eternal destiny, but He's also given us the power to walk the way that He's encouraged us to walk through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're like me, you may know a whole lot of Christians that fail to live up to the standard that God has set for them. And they stumble. Some people would use the phrase carnal Christian. Although they're a believer in Jesus Christ, they don't walk in victory. They walk like the rest of the world and they, they fall into the patterns of society. Now, you might ask yourself, what's the reason for that? How can somebody say they're a believer in Jesus and they believe that He died for them and that He's coming again, but yet they fail to walk as victors in Christ and they fall back into old sin patterns I've come to a kind of a conclusion on this I've known a lot of people maybe you have as well who believe they know that they know that they know that Jesus is the savior of the world and that he died for their sins but yet they struggle with walking for Christ in their daily life here's why I believe that to be true many people see Jesus as their savior but not as their lord so you see in the New Testament when John and Peter and James are encountering individuals, they really push the button to say, not only proclaim Jesus as Savior, but also Lord of your life. What we're going to look at this morning is really an understanding of what it means when we're told that Jesus is Lord of our life and how we're supposed to live in response to that. We're going to only look at one verse this morning, kind of a short teaching because we've got communion, but here's how I want to set it up. I want to take you to Ephesians 5, and we left off with verse 20 last week. We're going to look at verse 20 real quickly, but verse 21 is the one we're going to focus on this morning. You'll see it on the screens as well as in your Bibles if you happen to have them or in the pew rack there in front of you. Verse 20 says this, "...always giving thanks for all things..." In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, here's the one we're going to focus on, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, there's about to be a transition to a really extensive discussion on how men and women relate to each other that's coming up next week. And so he sets it up 
by telling us that we have to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So before you get to this really big discussion about how men and women, how children relate to their parents, parents to their children, we have to really understand what it means to be subject to one another and why he wrote it this way. So this concept of being subject to one another is captured in the Greek language by one word. It's the word hupotasso. And it's a military term, and it literally means to be ranking yourself under. So when you think of a military term, you think of an individual who has a commanding officer. And that commanding officer is in a power position over those who rank under them. So if we're going to transfer that thought to the church and how we're told as a Spirit-filled believer, one who's controlled by the Spirit, we're going to subject ourselves to one another, meaning put the other person's needs first. Now, we're told in the fear of Christ is how that's done. And what most people fail to understand is what does it mean to live in the fear of Christ? Maybe you've never seen that phrase before. So we're going to drill down really deep this morning into what does it mean to understand the fear of Christ? Where is that coming from? Because this concept of me being subject to you and you being subject to me really finds its power and its effectiveness in the fear of Christ. So let's look at this because what we want to understand is this word fear. Maybe when we look at the phrase, the fear of Christ, we think, well, does the word fear really mean what I think it means? Well, let's look at the Greek word for it. It's the word phobos. And it says to be in exceedingly fear, to to be in terror, so, yeah, it means what you think it means, all right? So we just kind of put that to rest. So think about who wrote this now. Paul, one of two individuals in the New Testament who saw not only the resurrected Jesus, but saw Jesus after the ascension. So Paul, like John who wrote the book of Revelation, saw the glorified Jesus. He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus shows up, he hears the voice, the voice says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's response is, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And we're told that Jesus' appearance was as bright as the noonday sun. So that's the same Paul who's writing, be in fear of Christ. Now you might logically ask this question, wait, why should we be in fear of the one who gave his life for ours? especially if we're sealed for eternity. Because that's what the Bible tells us. We're sealed. We're promised that eternity is ours. Why should we be in fear of Him? And why would Paul write it that way? Well, to help set this up so you really get a grasp on it, I want to take you to a couple passages beyond Ephesians. And the first one is 2 Corinthians 5.10 to help us understand where this is coming from. This one says, For we must all appear... Before the judgment seat of Christ, and this is talking about believers, not non-believers. Believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, before you get that, that word judgment too entrenched in your mind, I want to help you understand where this is going. Jesus himself spoke about the concept of him being a judge, and there's two different thrones. He's going to judge from the white throne, which is the judgment of non-believers, and he's going to judge from another throne called the judgment seat of Christ, 
That's the one that applies to us. So let's move forward a little bit because Jesus himself speaks about this concept of him being a judge. Matthew 10, 28 is one of the first examples of that. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him. And he's talking about himself. He's not talking about Satan. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay? Get that concept. Move forward with me to Matthew 5, 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And this is the throne from which He rules. Now, the first appearance in the Bible of the concept of the fear of God actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember Adam is running around naked, He's living in obedience. Satan shows up and tempts him. He was naked and he knew no shame. He falls to the temptation. He disobeys God. And the next thing we know, he's sewing a pair of gym shorts for himself, trying to hide himself, okay? So he ducks behind a tree. He hears God coming. And what do we hear Adam say about God's presence at that point? Look with me on the screen. Genesis 3.10. This is Adam speaking. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. You remember the conversation God went on to say, who told you you were naked? Now, this word afraid that he's using here is the the counterpart to the Greek word. You just saw the Greek word phobos. The Hebrew word is yare. And when Adam used this word yare, He was talking about the same kind of fear that we just saw in the New Testament. This is the way the ancients used the word Yahweh. Yahweh. The concept behind Yahweh, Y-A-R-E, is that something was much mightier than you and that you lived in subjection to that one. So Adam, who was not in sin, knew no fear of God, and then falls into sin and immediately goes into a position of fear of God. We see it appear again, the fear of God in the Old Testament in various places, but one really prominent example is in Exodus chapter 1. Let me show you this one on the screen. Exodus 1.17, and this is when the children of Israel are living under bondage. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So in their mind, they were more fearful of God than they were of man. Pharaoh being the most powerful ruler in the world, yet their fear of God was greater than their fear of man. So it changed their behavior. Now if you move forward into the New Testament, you find a setting in which the concept of the fear of God is used again. Jesus is on the cross. He's got a criminal on his right and a criminal on his left. One of the criminals is hurling insults at Jesus. Let me show you this passage on the screen. Luke 23, 39. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? So the fear of God is alive and well in the first century, just like it was in the Old Testament, just like it was in the garden. People are very aware of this concept. Now historically, the rabbis said, even before Jesus, there were two types of fear. There's the lower fear, which is the fear of punishment. 
And secondly, there's the higher fear, which is the fear of divine awe or, or to be in glory. That's the word yare. So the, the differentiation would be like uh, the fear of harm, like I'm afraid of a snake because it's going to bite me. That's the lower fear. Or the higher fear is like an exalted king, so I have respect for that individual. Now, C.S. Lewis was writing about this issue. One of the many books he wrote, one of them was called The Problem with Pain. And in the midst of it, I pulled a quote out of it. I wanted you to see. He's speaking about the fear of God. This is his quote. It is not a fear that one feels for a tiger. Rather, the fear is one filled with awe in which you feel wonder and a certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy. It is a fear that comes forth out of love for the Lord. Now, those are all great concepts. Those are man-type concepts, but the best one comes out of the book of Psalms. And I want you to see it from Psalms 130, verse 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. See, the fear that we have in relationship with God comes out of relationship with God. The fear that we could offend Him. So we're not talking about the kind of fear that we're being frightened of God in the sense that He's waiting to just pound you into the ground, but rather, this is not the fear that leads to despair, but it's the kind of fear that's coupled with trust, that God's going to do what He says He would do. So the fear of God is felt because of the relationship that we have with Him. However, understanding and expecting there's going to be a judgment seat. And you and I will stand before that judgment seat. And what's that all about? So it's really important that we understand this New Testament doctrine, that there's the judgment seat of Christ, and there's rewards associated with the judgment seat of Christ. Rewards for you. Things that God will give to you. And this is really often ignored and is misrepresented because of the term judgment that's hedged in there with it. So it's very important that we spend just a minute understanding that because today there is considerable confusion regarding the exact nature of the judgment seat of Christ. Here's the big misconception, and it's very common, that God is going to in some way deliver to you retribution for the sins that you committed in the past in your life. And that at the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to receive some kind of punishment as a result of it. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is tremendously serious. And it has eternal ramifications for you. But it's not a place and time where the Lord's going to pass out punishment to you for sins that are committed. Rather, what it is, it's a place where rewards will be given out. And I'm going to help you to understand that. Rewards will be given and rewards will be lost depending on how you walk and how you live out your life. It's very significant that in the last book, the last chapter of the last book, one of the last words of the last chapter of the last book, the book of Revelation, that Jesus says something about rewards. Look with me on the screen. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I, Jesus speaking, am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Now, every man at this point is believers. All the non-believers have already been judged by Revelation 22. So he's speaking to believers, and he's bringing with him reward to distribute to those according to what they have done. So just so we're really clear, your salvation in Christ is a gift. 
but there are rewards for your faithfulness, and there's loss of rewards for unfaithfulness. So God knows us, and rewards are a great motivator. God wired you. He knows how we think and how we act. And so we're motivated by rewards. And so God has a reward system. So rewards are a really big deal. So it's important that we understand the motivation of this. So there's a meaning behind the concept of the judgment seat of Christ. And it's in your notes this morning. If you pulled those out, over on the right-hand side, you won't see this up on the screen, but on the right-hand side of your notes is one word, and it's the word bema, B-E-M-A. And it literally is referring to a raised platform because the Greeks captured this concept originally, but the Romans corrupted it. Now, the Romans took the concept of the Bema seat, which was really just an elevated platform with a throne that sat up above it, a a, a seat from which they would judge, and the Romans used it for purposes of dealing out retribution or punishment. You see an example of that when Jesus is on trial before Pilate. Look with me up on the screen at Matthew 27, 19. It says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, this is Pilate, His wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man for last night. I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So you're familiar with that passage if you're familiar with the trial of Jesus. Pilate is up on his Bema seat and he's about to render a verdict whether or not Jesus should live or die. But the Greeks originally captured the concept of Bema, B-E-M-A, because it came from the Olympic Games, the original Olympics. When judges or magistrates of athletic competitions would stand on the side and watch competitors, perhaps in a race, run by, they would be there for the purpose of watching and making sure that everyone followed the rules and that every competitor did exactly what they were supposed to do. Now, at the end of the race, when someone would finish the competition, one of the magistrates would walk over to the victor, the one who had finished the race well, take them by the hand and lead them up to the raised platform where the final big judge was sitting on what was known as the Bema seat, and that judge would hand out a reward to the individual who was competing in the race. So it's very important that we get this concept down. So here's the picture, that believers are competitors in a spiritual contest. That's the imagery that Paul's using here, the more of the Greek image than the Roman image. And just as the first century athlete appears before the Bema seat to receive a perishable reward, the believer in Jesus appears before the judge, the Bema seat with Christ on it, to receive an imperishable reward, something that won't fade. So picture this, the judge at the Bema seat bestowed rewards to the victors. He did not whip the losers, all right? We just get, we get that image down. Think of the Olympics and somebody competing in a race, and if you come in second, you get a beating. See, that just doesn't happen, right? And, and the judge in the, in the competitions, they, they did not sentence them to hard labor as a result of losing, unlike Saddam Hussein. Remember that a few years ago? We learned that in the soccer competition when the Iraqi soccer team went to compete in the Olympics, they returned to Iraq, and Saddam Hussein had them thrown in prison and tortured because they lost in the Olympics. That's not your God. That's not the image that's being used here. Now, in truth, all believers are going to stand before the Bema seat, and you will give an account for your life. You will stand before the great and mighty King, and you will give an accounting. But this is not a time of punishment. 
where believers are judged for sin because that would be really inconsistent with the finished work of Christ on the cross. He paid totally for all your sins, past, present, and future. There isn't anything that he didn't accomplish. So you're under grace. You don't come under judgment. That's why Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You agree with that? Great. I'm glad to hear that. That's a powerful, powerful image to keep in your mind. So you are placed beyond condemnation in Christ. As a matter of fact, here's a really strong reminder for you. It comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. That's what God has destined you for, not for wrath. So here's a logical question. What's the purpose of the Bema Seat then? Why are we brought before him? Well, there's three views of the Bema Seat. And I'm just going to tell you on the front end, the first one I disagree with totally. The first concept of the Bema Seat is that it's going to be a place filled with absolute terror and sorrow where Christ will display all of your life for the entire resurrected church to see on a monster video screen. Now, would you want to buy popcorn to that movie? I don't want you seeing my life, and I don't want to see your life. We don't need to have that kind of concept in our mind. I totally disagree, and I'm going to show you why I totally disagree with that concept, that we're going to stand in absolute terror as God puts a display on a monster IMAX for everybody in the world to see all the things that we ever did. A lot of people have that concept in their mind, but I'm going to help you to see why I totally disagree with that. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, at the far opposite side is this view that the Bema seat is going to be like an award ceremony, like the Oscars, where there's a red carpet rolled out, and people are going to walk down and, you want a new car! Well, that's not the image either, because there actually is going to be loss of rewards. There's going to be some disappointment, but not shame and terror like on this side, or total euphoria on this side. What is it that's consistent with the Bible? Well, I put it in your notes this morning. You're going to see it up on the screen as well. But it's very important us to have God's view of what the Bema seat looks like. Because if we're going to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, it's important to have this image down. So first of all, we, and I'm speaking to believers, those who are believers in Jesus, we who are Christians will stand glorified before Christ without a sin nature. So that means we have been completely forgiven, we're in glorified bodies, we're before the Bema seat, and without any guilt, because we have been declared righteous. So that totally destroys the concept of shame and fear and terror on this side of the spectrum. But on the opposite side of the spectrum, we understand that this is a really serious examination, and not a condemnation but a commendation, a period of time in which there's an emphasis in which Christians will have to give an account of your life before an omniscient and holy Yare. That kind of fear that we stand before the King of Kings. And everything that's done through the energy of the flesh Everything that's done that's self-serving, that's done out of the power of the Holy Spirit, will be regarded as worthless. 
But everything that's done in the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be graciously rewarded. That's what Scripture tells us. So what I understand as a result of this is there are consequences for my sin here on planet earth that will echo in eternity even if I'm a believer. I may be saved and I may be destined for eternity, but if I choose to not walk with Jesus as Lord of my life and I continue to commit sinful activity and live as the world, there will be consequences that echo in eternity because ultimately there's going to be a loss of rewards. Now let me show you that. I want to take you, to, so I can back it up with Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look with me on the screen. Verse 13. Each man's work will become evident for the day. And if you have your own Bible and you don't mind circling, the day is the day of judgment. That's what it's referring to. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Now, a lot of people are good with that last part. They say, well, as long as I'm in, that's good. And I may be having everything else burned up, but as long as I'm in, just as I'm saved through fire, I'm okay with that. Well, that's inconsistent with the standard what God's calling us to. If we're going to walk worthy of the manner by the high calling of which we've been called, we're told God's reward system is really important to Him. He wants us to work towards these things. So there's some positive aspects to the Bema Seat. It's not a time that you're supposed to regret and look forward to with fear in the sense of, woe is me, but in the sense you look forward to the things in which Christ is going to reward you for the things that you've done here on planet Earth. Now, first of all, here's one of the positive aspects, that God is actually the one who's going to evaluate the quality of our work. As a matter of fact, there's an evaluation process that's going on right now. And if you don't believe me, look at Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, in which you see Jesus speaking about the seven churches in Europe at that time. And he speaks very specifically about the things that they did do and the things that they did not do. And it's very clear that God kept a record and he was quite aware of the things that they had failed him in and the things that they had excelled in. And as a result, the things that we're, we're going to fail in, we're told according to the Bible, he's going to destroy anything that's unacceptable because it's not worthy of a reward. And in Scripture, that's called wood, hay, and stubble, meaning it burns up in the fire. It doesn't amount to anything. It's worthless. But the things that we have done as what we would call good for the kingdom through the work of the Holy Spirit... He said that's going to produce gold and silver and precious stones. You ladies like jewelry? I'm speaking your language right now, okay? God's talking about things that you're going to be given as a reward. Not sure what it's going to look like, but one of the things we're going to get into in just a minute is the concept you're going to receive crowns. Now, just so you're really clear, if you have things that are disqualified and, and there's no reward we're not talking about a loss of salvation. You are sealed for eternity, redeemed to live with the king. But there is a work system that God has put in place, not by which you would work to earn your salvation, but that you would work towards advancing the kingdom, and as a result, there will be rewards. 
I was reading earlier this week, one of the old dead theologians I like to study is uh, J. Hampton Heathley. And um, he died in the 90s, but he used to be a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And J. Hampton Heathley said in the 1960s in the registrar's office at Dallas Theological Seminary, there was a, there was a big sign that sat above the desk like a plaque, and it said, salvation is by grace, but graduation is by works. So get your act together. <laughs> the two do work together. Salvation is by grace, but God gives the rewards through the system by which we serve Him well. So as I wrap up this part right here, what I want this verse in Corinthians to really register with you of who is going to give you your reward. Look with me up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 4 or 5 says this, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. The one whom we hold as Yahweh, the one whom we are in fear of, healthy fear, is the one who himself is going to give you praise, whom you might hear one day say, well done, good and faithful servant, who will personally put a crown of righteousness on your head. That's what Scripture tells us, that we're going to receive crowns. But here's the truth. The crowns really will belong to Him. So there is this convergence of awe and reverence and adoration and honor and worship and thankfulness and, yes, fear because of the relationship of what He's done for us. If you look in your notes this morning, you're going to see this list of different rewards, things that are going to be given out to people. I'm not going to get into it today, but just look at the aspects and the nature of the things that are going to be given out. It's an incredible thing to keep in the front of our mind and remembering at all times all our crowns, all our rewards will be cast at the feet of Christ for He alone is worthy, church. He alone receives it. So the Lord Jesus is really the victor. And His victory is really our victory. Our victory is really His victory. So here's what I'm going to do for you this morning. I'm going to read to you, and I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes where I left off last week in Revelation 4. It's the picture of the scene around the throne. If you take just a minute and close your eyes, I'm just going to read to you a couple verses before we do communion so that you get this imagery of casting crowns at the feet of Jesus. I'm going to start at verse 6 because it's the imagery of these creatures and the elders before Christ. Verse 6. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And then in the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature is like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is 
and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, to the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Father, we thank You for this imagery that we have in our mind. That one day, not because of our righteousness, but because of Your righteousness and what You did for us through Jesus, that we will stand before You. Not in terror that we're going to be cast into hell, but in a confidence knowing that You love us as Your children if we've declared faith in Your Son. And that you want to reward us for the walk that we've carried out here on planet earth as we've advanced your kingdom. The things that we do out of the purity of our walk. The desire to see others put first. God, that we would learn what it is to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So that as we enter into marriage relationships and our raising of our children and we deal with people in public, God, that we would represent you as those who walk in kingdom light. As we celebrate communion right now, God, I ask that you remind us what you did for us to put us in this position. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.